chapter 3 of inductive Bible study. The first couple chapters were more introductory, laying out some principles as we come to the Word, laying out this inductive process that we talked about last week. We're letting God's Word um, speak to us, not try to read into it, take our ideas and, and find uh, proof texts and things like that. So uh, this chapter begins a new unit, and as we talked about last week, uh, the three focuses, the three steps we could say in this inductive process are observation, interpretation, and then application, okay? So this first unit is focused on observation. So we're going to look at uh, five steps, so the next chap- several chapters will be focused on these steps of how we can just let God's Word speak to us as we come to the text, as we seek to practice that exegetical method, letting God's Word speak to us pulling out of Scripture what it says, not reading into it. Um, So you see there the unit overview. We're going to talk about these the next several weeks. Today, step one is going to be comparing translations. And I can't remember if I put this on the screen. Yes, it's real small, but it's on your notes there. So step one, what we're going to look at today, comparing translations, looking at translations as tools for observation. So we're going to dive into that today. Uh, the next step, and so these will be subsequent weeks. Step two, asking the right questions of the text, engaging the text as an active listener. So we want to write, ask the right questions. Step three, reading with discernment. So therefore, determining significant terms. Step four, having eyes to see. So observing literary features. Step five, determining literary units, basic discourse analysis. So I know that's a brief overview, but I wanted you to know kind of where we're going when it comes to this idea of observation, observing the text, okay? So this morning we're going to talk about step one, comparing Bible translations. So let me start by a pretty simple question. Um, we're going to ask, what translations of the Bible do you use or do you have with you today? So um, I'll throw out a few, and if you have them, raise your hand. And then if, you, if I don't say your version, I might ask, you know, is there another version? So who has the King James? Okay, Rhonda? Okay, who has the New King James? Okay, you have, okay, New King James, Lynn. Um, Who has the ESV? That's probably one of the most common around here, okay. Uh, What about the NASB? Anybody have the NASB? Okay, how about the NIV? NIV, a couple, okay. Uh, NLT, is that you, Paul? You you and you alone, okay. Um, How about the CSB? That's pretty common today, pretty new one, or, or the... HCSB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Anybody have that? Okay. Is there a version that someone has that I didn't throw out there? Simon. The Legacy Standard. That's the new John MacArthur one, right? Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Yeah, I haven't gotten into that one yet. So very, very neat. So you can see there's a variety of translations that we use even just here in our church. And so we're going to talk about seeing some differences or seeing some nuances in how different versions translate different passages and why that may be. Um, So let me ask this, what version of the Bible did Jesus and his disciples use? The living Jesus Bible, okay. He was the incarnate word, so absolutely. How How about, and part of that's a trick question, of course there weren't Bible versions like we have today, but they did have a version of the Hebrew Old Testament. Did they use the Hebrew, or what, what version did they use? Do you know? They had 
scrolls, absolutely. So the originals would have been written there in Hebrew, but of course not everybody had access to the originals. There were copies, but uh, what does anyone know what version they used of the Old Testament? Did they use the Hebrew? Did they use Latin? Did they use, what did they use? Greek, you know what we call that? The Greek translation of the Old Testament? It's called the Greek Septuagint, right? So the Greek Septuagint was the version that they used uh, which was again was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, um, and so there are times where uh, a lot of times when the disciples or apostles would quote or even Jesus would quote the Old Testament, they were quoting it from the Greek Septuagint. Okay, so that's just an interesting note as we think about translation. So translations are not something new. I mean, in fact, we all need translations unless we know the he- the original Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, right? So not wrong to have translations, just want to be aware of things when we come to translations, right? All right, so the first thing we're going to talk about. So uh, as we think about these differences in translations, uh, there's usually going to be four reasons. We're going to look at four reasons this morning for why there may be a difference between one translation and another, okay? So typically it's going to be one of these four reasons, and this is part of the, as we ask questions, we look why does this version say this and this version say this? It's usually going to be one of these four, so we want to know these so we can ask the question. Yes. Okay, well, we're going to get into that a little bit. So uh, there can be errors and, and things like that. But we have so many manuscripts. We're going to talk about how uh, we, can be, we can know that God's Word is reliable. And most of the issues where it may be a, an error or a copious error are typically not... Uh, they're not going to change doctrine in any way, okay? So we can trust God's word in that way. But yeah, that, that could be a possibility. So we're going to talk about four of these. The first one is what we're calling exegetical decision-making. So anytime translators are going about translating something from the original languages into English, there's a lot of times where they have to make an exegetical decision. They have to determine what was the author trying to communicate. And typically these there are committees that are te- seeking to translate. It's not just one person. It's usually committees. Maybe, maybe they have a little bit of different perspective uh, as they're coming to the text. And so they have to land somewhere in certain passages where they have to make an exegetical decision. So you see in your, um, in your notes there, I've got these charted out to show you the passage in question. It's got it kind of in quotes, and then it's going to show you how different versions translate it. Okay. Um, I thought about polling some of you if you had this version or that version. That would probably take a while to try to, okay, you read it from your version, you read it from your version. This simply just shows you here's the different way that this word typically is translated in different versions. So the first one there is Psalm 8.5. And you see there uh, the verse, you made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. Well, God is translated uh, is that word in bold in the Holman Christian Standard, the NRSV, NASB, and the, the, uh, it has H, HCSB again. Um, ESV, NET, NIV, at, at 94, translated heavenly beings. And then the KJV, New King, King James, LXX, and then NIV 2001. So that was a, an update translated as angels. Okay? So... What do you think when you look at that? What, what do you think about those differences? It, just face value. If you were to, let's say you were studying this, this psalm, and you looked in the Holman Christian, and then you looked at the ESV, and you looked at the King James, and you said, man, they all translate it differently. What might be your first assumption 
and it, it can be wrong because we're not going to, you, you haven't dove into this yet, but what might be your first question as to why this is translated differently? Any ideas? Don't be afraid to be wrong because this is part of the process as you're observing God's word. You might, have a, you might say, well, I wonder if this could be it or that could be it. Nancy? Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that aspect of language changing. Um, And that's absolutely an overarching, when you're looking at translation, it's not always this word in this language is exactly equal to this word. So absolutely. And that's sort of the idea here that we're going to see. Bob? Okay, so yeah, I think looking at the context of the passage um, and trying to understand what's the author trying to communicate is part of the difference. So let me, let me tell you this, because this will help us to understand why some translate it God and others do not, okay? Because um, really, when we're looking at the context, uh, it seems to not be saying that, that, that God created man less than himself per se is less a little bit lower than the angels a little bit lower than even the heavenly bodies in his creative order but he's crowned him he's exalted him above those things and that he's created in God's image uh so that seems to be somewhat of what's being communicated and I think that's why ESV King James some of those translated heavenly beings or angels but the actual Hebrew word is the word Elohim and what does Elohim mean typically God. It's a name for God, right? Um, and so that's why you can see some translate it. That's God, right? L- a little less than God. Um, however, Elohim doesn't necessarily always mean God. And so that's why some of the people look at this context. They say, well, I don't think the author's communicating that just that man's been created less than him, you know, than God, but that he's been created less than the rest of created order. And you look at Psalm 8, it is a proclamation about looking at God's creation, and so then it, what is man that you're mindful of him? You know, you've made him a little lower than those created things. So we're not going to get into the answer. Or, you know, we probably have all different opinions. Some of us would translate it God, some would translate it heavenly beings, some angels, but the whole point of this is not to say, okay, we're going to land, we're going to finally determine once for all, you know, the Dell Bible Church translation, and we're going to be correct. That's not what we're going to do. It's just more to show you, here's some examples of what to be aware of and where how... how Uh, People go about the process, so as you see those differences, it could be potentially because of this, okay? The second example is Amos 4.4, okay? And it's hard to not, we're not going to be able to read the context of all these. Um, If you want to dive in a little deeper and look at the context, that can be helpful. But you see there, um, the quote there is, Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tents every three days, okay? So the word there uh, is yom. Anybody ever heard of the Hebrew word yom? Pretty, pretty heavily debated word, especially when you come to Genesis uh, 1 and God's created order. And uh, typically yom, and especially, and this, is, this will be answers in Genesis saying, you know, because a lot of people try to look to Genesis and God's created order and say, well, these weren't days, these were ages. Yom can mean ages. It can mean any amount of time. Well, when we look at it, any time in Scripture, yom is used with morning and evening, it's always a literal day, right? 
Um, and so yom is pretty heavily debated in Genesis 1, but when we come to this passage, that word yom, which can be referenced not just a day, uh, you see there a lot of versions translate it days and some years. And the reason for that is because in the Old Testament, this is part of people trying to uh, correlate all of Scripture together. And so as they look at Scripture and they look at specifically, I should have put this reference in your notes, you can write it. I put left some space if you want to make some notes under the charts. But um, in Deuteronomy 14, 28 and Deuteronomy 26, 12. So Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 26, 12, we see that there was a law to bring a tithe every three years. Okay, So there was this law uh, to bring to bring this sacrifice every three years. And so a lot of people are saying, okay, because there's not a law to bring a tithe every ten days, or every three days, they must, this word must mean years, because they're looking back at Deuteronomy. And so that's why you see the King James and two NIVs translated as years. However, we're not going to have time to look at the context, but if you look at the context of Amos, what he's actually talking about is kind of sarcastic. He's saying to them, you're trusting your rituals, you're trusting... And these things, well, if, if all these, if, if you keeping God's law brings favor to him, then why don't you just up the ante and instead every three years, just bring a tithe every three days and see if that gets God's approval, right? So there's a hint of sarcasm, and that's why you see these other versions uh, translating it as days. So again, there's some nuance there. And again, this is where as the translators are coming together, they've got to make a decision. Is the author talking about days or years? And you can see how they've come to different conclusions some say, well, he's being sarcastic. Some would say, well, no, Deuteronomy says this, and so we're trying to be consistent there. And so you see that difference, okay? The next example there, as far as exegetical decision-making, is 1 Corinthians 7, 1, okay? So um, this is an interesting one. Uh, so you see there the quote, Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman, Okay? So this is Hebrew-Greek don't have punctuation, right? There's not periods and exclamation points and quotes and all that. And so you see some translations put that phrase, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman, in quotation marks. Some don't have quotation marks. And then Paul, your version, the NLT, doesn't just put it in quotation marks. It says, yes, it is good. Okay? Um, so let me ask this first of all. How does the presence or absence of quotation marks change what Paul's saying? And you might want to turn to 1 Corinthians 7, because this is one that would be good to look at the context a little bit. So 1 Corinthians 7. How does it change if there's quotation marks or if there's not? You know? Okay. Yeah, the, the question is these this phrase, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. Is this Paul saying this as he is speaking to the Corinthians? Saying to them. Now, what you wrote about, I'm going to tell you this. Now, it's not good for a man to have relations with a woman. And then you look at the rest of 1 Corinthians 7, and it seems like 
basically what he would then be saying is, yeah, it's not good for a man to have relations with a woman, and so, but God's allowed marriage, and so it's less than ideal, but God's allowed it so that you don't burn in lust and that kind of thing. So it's almost like a less than regular, if it's Paul's words. Joseph. Yeah, in, in this case, that's not, not what's at play, but that can be the case. We're going to see that a little bit as to where certain idioms don't carry over uh, to English. But So the debate is just what you said. Um, is this Paul saying this statement that it's not good for a man to have relations with a woman, or is it in quotations, meaning you wrote about this, you know, that's what he starts by, now, in response to the matters you wrote about, and then he's stating the matter they wrote about, that it's not good for man to have relations with a woman. Now he's going to push back against that false teaching. Okay, So do you see the difference? Because then the rest of First uh, Corinthians 7 is saying, no, this is what, this is not true. It's not true that God, or that it's wrong to have relations with a woman. And that's why God's allowed marriage. And, you know, but if you can remain single, do you see how there's a little bit of nuance in how it's translated? Okay. Um, so, again, I don't think we, we're going to land anywhere today. This is probably going to be one where you're, hopefully this presses you, maybe some of these you want to study a little bit more, but yes. Euphemism is kind of a, <laughs> it's kind of a way of saying something, I don't know, how would you define euphemism? Kind of a way of, yeah, we, yeah, it's, you're replacing Something uh, easily understood with something that's maybe a little more obscure, if that makes sense. Lynn. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that's what it... Yeah, and I think... I can't remember... Sometimes... Translations and it might be that way in the King James. Sometimes the italicized words are are identifying that there's not a direct word that 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 those words are based on. Because sometimes when you're tra- especially with Greek, um, well, just like Good Friday, the phrase "it is finished" is one word. So there's not like a okay, here's the word for it, and here's the word for is, and here's the word for finish. It's one word, and from that though, we're trying to understand what is being communicated. And so maybe if you even look at that in, in uh, John 19, if the it is is not is italicized, then you know, okay, they're trying to show, okay, we had to supply these to make it make sense. Otherwise, it's going to be very choppy. It would just say, good for a man not to have relations or whatever. So that may be the case. I'm not sure how the different translations do different things like that. Just like I think the King James and other versions will capitalize all the letters of Lord when it's Yahweh. And it'll be lowercase when it's another name like Elohim or something like that. So it's kind of interesting when you learn some of those things. Um, they can stand out as you're reading translations. But yeah, there's a, there's a difference there. Depending on, are these the Corinthians words that then Paul's pushing back against? Or is Paul saying, yeah, it's not good. Um, and so based on that, yes, Joseph. Yeah. Yeah. 
Right. Right. Yeah, so there's a little, there's a little nuance there. Um, and so again, the, the whole point of this is so you can see that translators have to sometimes make an exegetical decision. You have to determine, we're going to do it this way or that way. And it can, it, it, you know, these aren't major doctrinal things, right? These aren't major, you know, salvific things. Not to say they're not important to get right or to seek to get right. Um, but it's, it's important to be aware of this as you're reading um, and, and ask the, these questions, okay? Yes. Okay, yep. But there's no, we have no Yeah. Yeah. A lot of those things are cultural, like we talked about, different principles, historical, cultural. We have to understand the culture of that day, just like um, women wearing hats and, you know, in that, in that day, I think that was in First Corinthians, you know, prostitutes would shave their heads. And so when they would get saved out of prostitution, their head would be shaved and everyone know, okay, this was this person's past and so you know there's different cultural things we got to look at when we look to the text absolutely so let's keep moving because we spent quite a while and i think this was more of the lengthiest most examples but the other another reason is not just uh exegetical decision making it could be translation theory and i put in here specifically this this um diagram or this this image um demonstrating that some, basically, this is all about how do translators interpret the Word of God and translate it, okay? Mainly, translate. how are they translating God's Word? Are they seeking to be word for word? So they're taking it one word at a time, and they're saying this word means this, and this word means this. And so what you see on that end of the spectrum, the NASB, is very close to word for word. In fact, so... I am not a Greek scholar by any stretch. In fact, I took, I took one year of Greek, and it was enough for me to know, like, this is way over my head. I'm not great with languages. But part of the class that we took, and I've probably forgotten all of that information, so, um, but part of that class, we translated First John together as a class. We would walk through it, translate verses at a time, and what we found is when we were going about it, and we were definitely going about it a word for word, we're trying to find out, okay, what is this word, what's the tense, how we translate that in English, what we found is the closest translation to what we were doing was probably the NASB. It's very directly word for word. And sometimes if you've ever read the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, you notice it's a little choppy because it's so word for word, right? And a lot of times in Greek, they would put the most important idea at the beginning. And so it can be kind of choppy. It can almost sound like Yoda talking sometimes. Um, then you see the ESV. What I love about the ESV is it's very still word for word, but it smooths out some of that. So it's almost like, okay, we're going to translate the verse. Okay, now let's try to make it flow a little bit more smoothly. We're not going to change the words. We're just going to change the, the flow of it to make it a little easier to read. So you see the scale, and the other end of the scale is what we call thought for thought. So this is not so much one word at a time. It's, okay, let me understand what this text is saying this passage and then let me not be so concerned about the words as I'm just going to try to carry the idea okay so if you're reading this verse okay I think what Paul's trying to say is this now let me put it in English that's more the thought for thought side of the spectrum and so you can see where different versions fall on the scale none are are literally word for word exactly even 
the NASB is going to be times where they're carrying over different thoughts. And even a thought for thought is not always going to be we're not looking at word for word either, okay? The message is, we're going to talk about that, is more of a paraphrase than a thought for thought, and I'll have a note on that, but yes? Yeah, yeah, that's a good example where, um, yeah, even as people are trying to communicate to someone who maybe doesn't understand bigger words, that's a great way of them taking it and trying to make it more simplified. So that would probably, kids' Bibles would probably be more of a thought-for-thought type of view, okay? So, again, point that out because this is going to determine why there may be differences. It may be because some are being more word-for-word and some are being are, are, are translating more thought-for-thought, okay? Um, an example of this, Luke 9, 44, where it says, Let these words sink in. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. So, um, the literal translation... Uh, when you take this word for word from the Greek, it literally says, let these words sink into your ears. Okay? Let these words sink into your ears. Um, that's not a common phrase we use in English. Let these words sink into your ears. So this is kind of an idiom that's, they're trying to communicate the idea. So some are going to be more, we're just going to communicate what this is saying exactly. A dynamic translation, so the Holman Christian NIV uh, it says, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. Okay? So there's no mention of ears, even though that word is there in the, the Greeks. But they're communicating the same idea, right? There's a thought for thought. Listen to what that's, what, that's essentially what is being said in Luke 9. Listen carefully. Um, the Holman Christian says, let these words sink in. I think that's the verse that, or version that was quoted. Let these words sink in without mentioning ears. So that makes sense to us. Let these words sink in. The N-E-T actually replaces the idiom that we see, let these words sink into your ears, with a, with a more suitable English idiom, take these words to heart, right? So we would, that would be a phrase we would say and we would understand, but in another language, take these words to your heart, your blood-pumping organ, that makes no sense, right? So you can understand sometimes trying to be word-for-word word versus more thought-for-thought thought can lead to some differences. Another one is Galatians 3.24, real quickly. Um, the law then was our guardian until Christ, okay? So you see there's a difference in how that word's translated for guardian. It could be guardian, it could be tutor, it could be schoolmaster. In fact, the original Greek word, and I'm not going to try to say it, I think it's pedagogos, um, actually refers to a slave in that day and age who had the duty of transporting a child uh, to their place of education and back safely. So this is not a concept we have in our culture today of a slave who, all right, your job is to take the kid to their place of education and then to bring them back home safely. And so we try to take that word and communicate, because if if that word was translated slave, what would be in our minds as Americans in the 21st century? Are we in the 21st century still? Yeah. We were in the 20th century, yeah. Yeah. what would our minds think if we heard if it said the law was our slave to bring us to Christ? Yeah, we're thinking of antebellum slavery in the South, right? And so that's a pretty negative. That's not, and a lot of times, even as we read Scripture, we got to understand the culture is different. When there are words like slave, servant, we've got to understand that's not apples to apples to slavery in the South. Okay, so. 
that's why none of the versions translate it slave, because that's not what's being communicated. They usually seek guardian. What do we think of when we think of guardian? What comes to mind? Okay, yeah, usually a substitute for a, a parent. Okay, they're their legal guardian. Okay, what do we think of when we think of tutor? What's a tutor? A teacher who's typically taking a student one-on-one outside of class, helping them to catch up, maybe being paid a little extra, right? What about schoolmaster? What comes to mind with the name schoolmaster? Keith, huh? They're in charge? I ask you because you're a little bit older. We don't have this as much today. But what (laughs) what did you say? Thanks a lot. I didn't say you're old. I just said a little older. But when, when you were growing up, were you in a one-schoolhouse? One or at least that was probably pretty common. Okay. 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 Yeah. So schoolmasters sometimes can carry that idea of a one-school, like one teacher teaching multiple grades. And so you can see there's a little nuance in even how guardian, tutor, schoolmaster, right? But we have to seek to understand, okay, what is the word? What is it trying to communicate? And so we understand, um, okay, why is there a difference? That can drive us to further study and looking at that original Greek word and what it means and what the cultural context was, okay? Um, We've got to keep moving real quickly. All right, I want to read this. Go ahead. Okay, yeah. And what, what, what is being communicated in Galatians is that the law was that tool of God to show us our need for Christ, to lead us to understanding that we fall short of God's glory, and now that Christ has come, not that the law is completely done away with, but we're not seeking to find our salvation in the law. We're realizing the law was pointing us to Christ, okay? So that's what we're, but at least understanding the difference should drive us to just uh, saying, why is there a difference? And understanding this may be the reason. I do want to read um, this quote. So he, he has a note on paraphrases. So there are a lot of translations, like we said, that are word for word. Some are more thought for thought. But there's versions today that are called paraphrases. The message is an example of this. I don't even know if you can call the Passion Translation a paraphrase. Um, because it's not really, like, it's not adequate just to read Read it in English, and okay, now I'm going to communicate what I think, okay? So I say this just to be careful of different supposed translations that are out there, but he makes this note. He says, before turning to our next reason why translations might differ from place to place, and while on the subject of translation theory, we'll make a few suggestions concerning the use of paraphrases. While dynamic translation is inevitable, so dynamic translation is uh, seeking to bring it into that idea, that thought into English, okay? So maybe not being as word for word. That's going to be necessary at times. Some have attempted to translate in a text, um, or so, sorry, some have, tr- have attempted to translate in a truly paraphrastic, paraphrastic, frastic manner, so they're trying to paraphrase, departing in large scale from the vocabulary and grammar of the original text. Notable paraphrases include Eugene Peterson's The Message, and to a lesser degree, the original edition of the, the NLT, so this is the 96 version, was a little bit more of a paraphrase. While these may be helpful supplements for Bible study, you shouldn't use them as primary translations for study or regular reading of God's Word. All translations reflect exegetical decision-making and dynamic equivalence 
But a paraphrase does this more than necessary, and you will subject yourself extensively to the exegetical opinions of the translator or translators when reading a paraphrase. Therefore, if you consult a paraphrase, treat it as you would a commentary. Beyond this, we'd caution you against using paraphrases as primary tools in Bible study or daily reading. So some are a little more, um, for lack of a better word, liberal in how they're going to try to communicate ideas. And so you just have to be careful of that. Um, and, I, and I think they point out the NLT, the original one, was more of a paraphrase. I think the current one is less of that, more of a thought for thought. Um, but just a note there, okay? All right, let's keep moving quickly. Another reason could be the textual basis behind a translation, okay? We'll move through this one pretty quickly. So you have to understand, uh, and we're not going to be able to get in depth with transmission, with how the Bible's transmitted and different things like that. That's a whole study we could do. But just know that when um, we're looking at translating, we're looking to manuscripts, right? We don't have any original autographs of God's Word. Now, that may, you may say, well, how can we even trust it if we don't have any originals? Well, we can trust it because there's so much overwhelming, there's so many overwhelming manuscripts that are accurate that we can see come from, came from the same source that we can know what we have as God's Word, okay? And there's been discoveries and things like the Dead Sea Scrolls that just line up perfectly with other manuscripts. And so, um, and, and when there's nuance or there's difference, we can tell, okay, this is probably a copyist error or something like that, okay? So just understand there's, there's, when it comes to God's Word being transmitted, we can trust what God's Word says, but we have to understand that there are manuscripts, and sometimes there's a variance in manuscripts. And so this brings about uh, the study of what we call textual criticism. Okay? Now, that may sound like a negative concept. We, we shouldn't criticize the text of Scripture, but really it's more seeking to be discerning. So we could call it textual discernment. We're looking at manuscripts and looking at this vast collection, and when we see differences, we're trying to determine, okay, why is there a difference? Is it you know, if all these uh, earlier manuscripts or ones that have an earlier source say this, and then this is added, it could be just a copyist put it in parentheses or it was copied over. So we're going to look at a couple quick examples of this. One is an Old Testament example, Hosea 7.14, where it says, They slash themselves for grain and new wine. King James, New King James, NASB, NIV say, actually use the word sojourn or a symbol, and then the, these other versions listed cut slash gash, okay? Um, so that's a big difference. That's two different words, okay? Um, and the reason is there's a different source text or textual basis for these translations. The Masoretic text uses the verb to sojourn or to assemble. So there's a Masoretic text that a lot of people use in, as they translate God's word. It says to sojourn or assemble. The Septuagint, so we talked about that, the Greek translation, the Old Testament, uh, uses the verb meaning to cut or to slash. So that's a, really, that's a translation of a translation, Greek, the Greek Septuagint. Both verbs look very similar in Hebrew, so they, their characters look very similar. They could easily be mistaken by a scribe as they made a copy. In most cases, when there's a difference between the two texts, so if the Masoretic text says something and the Septuagint's different, typically translators are going to follow the Masoretic text because, again, the Greek Septuagint is a translation of a translation. We're translating the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Okay, so typically they're going to side with Masoretic text uh, over the Septuagint, but in this instance it seems that the Septuagint makes more sense. So as you look at the context of what was seeking to be communicated, it seems like it makes more sense to go with, with um, 
to so I think to sojourn or to assemble is what they they would say. Okay. We don't have time to look in depth to that, but another one, Colossians 1.14. Okay, we're going to try to wrap up very quickly. Um, this is a New Testament one. So you see there, the quote is, We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in Him. Now, the King James and the New King James include the blood of Christ. We have redemption, uh, the forgiveness of sins, and it mentions the blood by the blood of Christ. Um, these other versions do not. And so... I don't know if you've been around, uh, and, and this is not to discredit anybody. I'm, I'm trying to be careful here, but um, there are people that have a King James-only position. They believe the King James Bible is the inspired Word of God, not just that it's inspired because the originals are inspired, but God actually inspired the translation of that, okay? Um, and so when people like that, people that are King James-only, see, Oh, they, these versions don't have the blood of Christ. They accuse these other versions of they're taking the blood of Christ out. They're t- changing doctrine. These aren't versions. They're perversions of the Bible, and we go on and on and on. But again, the King James Version is not the standard. What is the standard? Really, the originals. And the originals, we're going to look at manuscripts that we can try to trace back through the study of textual criticism to understand what was probably most accurately communicated in the originals, that's the standard. And so, in that, with that said, so the textual basis for the King James and New King James is the Textus Receptus. Okay, it's a compilation of different manuscripts. That's what they use. Whereas the eclectic text is the textual basis for most modern translations. Through time, I mean, since 16, the 1600s, we've got a lot more evidence of manuscripts, and we can determine a little more accurately what the originals may have said. And this is not to discredit the King James Version. I mean, it's a uh, perfectly reliable version of the Bible. Um, We're going to talk in a minute about how language changes, and so we have to be aware of that when we come to the King James. But um, this is just to say that probably the originals didn't include the blood of Christ. So why is the blood of Christ in the Textus Receptus or some manuscripts? Well, this verse, Colossians 1.14, is very, very similar to, to Ephesians 1.7, which was also written by Paul, right? And in Ephesians 1.7, that phrase, through his blood, is in the Textus Receptus and the Eclectic Text. So it's in both there. Uh, and so it seems pretty easy to understand as you, as a scribe, is writing Scripture, of course they're going to have a lot of Scripture memorized, that that phraseology, they might naturally just add in his blood, or maybe it was in parentheses, through his blood, because they're thinking back to Ephesians 1.7. And so... It's very easy to understand that could have been added to it. Typically, not to get into depth, but typically in textual criticism, if there's something uh, in one version or one text, you know, basis for text and not in another, it's usually things are added and not taken away. That's typically what is determined. So it's easier for a scribe to make a note or add something because of, you know, being familiar with another verse Typically, scribes aren't taking things out. So that's just a common thing we think about. Joseph. Okay. So even, even if we take it without in his blood, the it's not removing, I mean, we, and again, there's plenty of verses in all the translations that talk about the blood of Christ and things like that. So um, this is just an idea, of, this is something we want to be aware of. So 
could be the textual basis. The last one, very, very quickly, dynamic nature of living language. This is just simply saying language changes over time. So when we come to the King James Bible, uh, it's gonna, language has changed. An example, James 2.3, and the King James says, and you have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing. How, how do you think, why do you think that's maybe controversial if we carry it directly over to today? Gay meant something different then, right, than it does today. There's a lot of heavier connotations. Then it just meant happy or, you know, meant like uh, wealthy clothes if you're showing uh, respect to those that wear those kind of fancier clothes, nicer clothes. Today, it, gay means homosexual, right, in our context. So we want to be careful. We understand that language changes. Another one is First Peter 2.12 where the King James uh, uses the word conversation. When we think of conversation, our speech, but really the word is more of a conduct, behavior, okay? And in that day, conversation included that. It included not just your voice. It meant the conversation of your life through your behavior. And so it's just a nuance of how language has changed, okay? So there's something to be important of. Again, this isn't to knock the King James Version because I think it's a perfectly reliable uh, text. Uh, it's funny. They know in the preface of the King James Version it says, therefore, as St. Augustine saith, that variety of translations is profitable for the finding out of the sense of the Scriptures. So even before the, or as the King James is prefaced, they're saying, uh, use other translations. That can help us to come to an understanding of what God's Word is saying, right? So that's, that's kind of how I want to close is real quickly, and I think I put those in your notes. But here's some suggestions as we think about different translations. When you're studying God's Word, have four or five translations, and as you're looking at a passage and you notice, well, this version's different than this version, now you can ask these questions, okay? Look for significant differences in translation. When there is a difference, ask why. Why is there a difference? And it's usually going to be one of these four things. Differing interpretations, differing translation theory, differing textual basis, change in language over time, or maybe it's a combination of those, okay? And then the last thing is, it's not wrong to have a preferred translation of the Bible, but we want to make sure we don't think that that's the standard. I love the ESV, but I don't think, well, this is the standard. No, we look at other, other uh, versions to understand, other translations to try to understand what the standard was, what the original said, okay? All right, so that's all I got for you. We've got to wrap up because there's people waiting. So let me pray real quickly, and then we'll be close.